The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, we have a recording from the recent Gene Batten Lecture that was presented by Des Underwood to the Bay of Plenty branch of the New Zealand Division of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Here's the recording. Good evening everybody. Welcome along to uh, the 2019 Jean Batten Address. Uh, this is of course is the fourth such uh, occasion that we've had here and it's hosted by the Bay of Plenty branch of the New Zealand Division of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And a special welcome to our honoured guest, Mr Greg Brownless, the Mayor of our town. And uh, Greg has in fact been to one of our earlier lectures on for the Jean Batten Award address. And uh, so I'll ask Greg if you'd um, like to um, say hello oh, uh, just now so that uh, he can do that while he catches his breath. Oh. 
Yes, well, every, everybody loves a mayor coming along and not knowing when to shut up. <laughs> but it, look, it's good to be here tonight. I'm, I just had to race across on the bridge. It's a crazy time of the year, and we're sort of having job interviews uh, in terms of an election. So <laughs> that's keeping me busy. But I just wanted to mention just something briefly, um, because this is a person I knew nothing about and his significant contribution to aviation in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, the council's just honoured him with a portrait, a mural at the airport, and his name was Oscar Garden. Just to, just to, I hadn't heard of him two months ago, so don't be shy. Who had not heard of Oscar Garden? And, uh, I was a little surprising that there were quite a number that have, so that's really good. But Oscar Garden, in 1930, uh, flew um, his plane that he bought at Selfridges in England uh, from uh, London through to Australia, to Sydney. And then after he did this feat, he did it with no fanfare. In fact, I think his family didn't even know he was going to do it. And then um, he came to New Zealand after that, and he was one of the forerunner pilots for Teal, Trans Tasman Empire, Empire Airways Limited. And then he lived most of his life in New Zealand growing tomatoes the latter part of his life in Matua. So it's quite an amazing story. And they call him the forgotten aviator, and I think towards the end of his life, he was a little bit bitter that perhaps some other aviators had the recognition that, that he didn't. And his daughter wrote a book about his life. And uh, you can ob obtain that at bookshops, Oscar Garden, The Forgotten Aviator. And it begins with, he was a bastard of a father and he was a bastard of a husband. But she still wants him recognised for his achievements. So I thought it was just a little interesting story to tell you about. And if you're in the airport here, because it's a new airport, um, just have a look and you'll see the mural of this man, Oscar Garden. And you can look him up on the internet and you'll find a few stories there, there too. So just, yeah, quite quite something unique for Tauranga. I'm going to really enjoy this uh, lecture. I've actually been uh, to the last two and enjoyed those. So uh, looking forward to t tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Right, so uh, the other, the other uh, person in particular that I will mention for the moment is Andrew Gormley, who, uh, as it turns out, can't be with us this evening. Uh, as I think everybody here knows, he's the CEO of Classic Flyers, and uh, we just wish to take the opportunity to publicly thank him again for the contribution that he and his team here at Classic Flyers make uh, to the uh, the museum and uh, also to our Bay of Plenty branch of the uh, of their society and uh, the we get a lot of support through being able to have the facility here to host our meetings and uh, and of course they also help to uh, let other people know that things are happening and spread the word for us. So we are celebrating just now uh, the fact that we've actually got uh, 50 members in the four years that we've uh, been in business here and uh, it's really nice to reach a nice round number uh, so early. <coughs> 
Our speaker tonight is uh, Des Underwood, and he's uh, not only the member of our branch, but he's um, the found one of the founding members, and indeed he put it all together. And he's been a volunteer at Classic Flyers since he and his wife Alison, who's also present, somewhere around, Alison, and. Uh, when they moved here to, from Wellington in 2013 and uh, Des has had a long, lifelong interest in aviation, both military and civil, and he served with the Royal New Zealand Air Force as a senior NCO and also as an engineering officer for uh, at least 20 years. And in the early 90s he spent four years in the management role with Pacific Aerospace Corporation at Hamilton. And he returned to the RNZAF again later when it became the New Zealand Defence Force as such and his role was in IT, information technology, and uh, that coupled with his engineering. And so altogether Dez served for 40 years in uh, the Air Force and uh, during that time he became a member of the Wellington branch of the Royal Aeronautical Society and uh, he set himself some challenges because that's the nature of Des. Uh, as an engineer he liked lots of challenges so he decided that uh, he was going to prepare and deliver a presentation on an aviation topic in a formal uh, setting every year and that culminated with him being awarded the Henry Wigram Medal in 2012 for the best presentation in the New Zealand Division of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And uh, it's helped him to pursue his interest as an aviation historian. So in tonight's address, Des will be sharing with us all some of his work as an aviation historian and specifically on the project he has contributed to over the past five years and that is a matter of the creation of a life biography of Jimmy Ward VC and uh, that biography has been titled Courage <coughs> Aflame and so because Des doesn't want to actually spoil the book uh, for people to read his address will cover the wider topic of the world of Sergeant James Ward, V.C. Please welcome Des Underwood to deliver his address. Thank you for the welcome, Jack. Good evening. Sergeant James Ward, uh, Sergeant Pilot James Ward, was a serving pilot in the RNZAF who gained his wings in New Zealand before he was seconded for war service with the Royal Air Force in the UK. Jimmy was his nickname, given to him during a stint in hospital in Wanganui. His family called him by his second name, Alan. His older brother, Harold, called him Jim. In August 
1941, Jimmy was awarded the Victoria Cross for his gallantry in air operations over the Netherlands uh, the previous month. So this is, uh, this is, his world was changed forever. Having to wear his uniform, which was compulsory uh, in wartime, his is the crimson VC medal ribbon made him conspicuous. It meant he was chased for interviews by reporters and became the fame or the celebrity for the Air Ministry and the Ministry of Information in the UK. My address tonight is set in 1941 and the years prior to that and we'll examine the scene of the of Bomber Command aircrew, how they got there, and what they faced in operations. This will include photographs, video, audio, uh, from the time, from that time. To conclude tonight, I'll introduce the book, Courage Aflame, which Jack has mentioned, which is the first biography of Sergeant Jimmy Ward, VC. It's a hundred years since uh, James Allen Ward was born to English parents in Wanganui. His family picture was taken on his 21st birthday. He was in the Air Force at that point. He was, he was born poorly and was small, uh, but this never stopped him. And he was into everything. Climbing was one of his attributes, along with swimming, life-saving, canoeing. He had his own boat. Jimmy's passion, passion for aviation was in model aircraft, and his room on the porch of the family home was festooned with models. His prowess in model flying was reached when he gained uh, local awards in 1937 and a national award in 1939. These models were in plastic, they were made from balsa, and uh, that was the nature of Jimmy. On leaving school, he completed training as a primary school teacher in Wellington Training College before returning to Wanganui to get, to get his teaching proficiency. He nearly died after contracting pneumonia, and it was then that he, when he was hospitalised, he was given the name Jimmy, and that stayed with him. While he was uh, on his <coughs> hospital bed, the Royal Air Force had planned a scheme called the British Commonwealth Air Crew Training Plan. And uh, it was hatched as the slide, which I won't repeat, uh, describes a scheme to train 50,000 aircrew a year. There wasn't enough airspace in the UK and uh, the likelihood of a war uh, meant that it wasn't the right place and Canada was chosen. In all, the BCATP provided 133,000 trained air crew um, to the Royal Air Force, 5% of them from New Zealand, 70,000 from Australia and uh, from Canada. So this was a significant uh, exercise. 
not listed but party to the plan, the United States provided clandestine non-military training for Royal Air Force aircrew and by war's end, 16,000 Royal Air Force aircrew were trained in the United States. They weren't trained in military schools, they were trained in civil schools and uh, in Texas. So, get lost in Texas. Um, during its, uh, at the same time, there was a parallel scheme, scheme called the Joint Air Training Scheme, which was uh, South Africa and Rhodesia contributed to the scheme. 30,000 aircrew. The numbers are boggling. Pilot training in New Zealand uh, for Jimmy Ward was uh, 1940, but from 1936, no, 1937, the government of New Zealand had a, had a plan which, which provided aero clubs with tiger moths to train pilots on a commission basis. The government provided the uh, funds to buy the aeroplanes and uh, wouldn't that be nice now? So these are the places that uh, Jimmy ended up going to. Uh, elementary flying training at Tyree, which is in Dunedin or Osgill, and then north to Wigram for advanced flying training. One of the things we discovered was uh, Jimmy Ward's logbook. This is the pilot's logbook. And out of that uh, came a lot of names and a lot of history that is in the book. One of them was uh, Jonas William Henry Lett. He, was a, he won the Air Force Flying Cross, uh, but he was one of, his, one of uh, Jimmy's instructors at, at Tyree. This is number 3A, A for Airmen, uh, pilot's course, and um, it, it started with 22 and uh, lost one along the way in an air accident, so 21 graduated. All were sent to the UK. This the uh, across the Pacific in the Aorangi, across Canada on a train, across the Atlantic in Georgic, in the ship, the Georgic, uh, to Liverpool, and then off to a thing called a personnel reception centre. This was at Uxbridge. Uxbridge, for the historians, is the same place where Keith Park uh, had managed the, uh, his fighter group uh, the previous year. I picked um, and suggested for the book a number of um, three Jameses. There was Jamie Ward, James Fraser Barron and Jim Starkey. Jim Starkey was from Gisborne, James, uh, Jimmy Ward was from Wanganui, and Fraser Barron was from uh, Central Otago. And uh, the book follows their, uh, their exploits, so hence the, the names in red. So they ended up at um, all destined for Bomber Command, 
and all destined for Wellington bomber conversion at Lossiemouth, which is a Royal Air Force station in the uh, north of Scotland. Jimmy, Jimmy said, suggested that uh, you could have all four seasons in one day, as far as the weather was concerned. This is a picture of uh, Jimmy Ward and his friend uh, Fraser Barron and, and his sister Patsy as they were walking up Queen Street prior to getting on the ship to head to the UK. The, these are a summary of the, the battles of World War II at the very start, Dunkirk, Battle of Britain, and the Blitz, I don't think I realised how long it went on for, eight months uh, statistics and the casualties were significant of course, both in people and in property. Coventry was one of many cities severely damaged and it was important to the wards they had come from there. The city was reduced, uh, reduced the precious cathedral almost to dust, but the spire remains as it does today. Percy Ward, Jimmy's father, had something to say about the perpetrators of this destruction and of his homeland, but the, the, the spire stood in defiance. That spire, he said, is standing still, and it will be standing long after Hitler and his crowd are dead and gone. How prophetic that was. New Zealand had, uh, as well as uh, establishing a pilot training school at, with aero clubs, had uh, the government had actually asked a, the air ministry in the UK to provide, provide an expert, and his name was Ralph Cochrane, Wing Commander the Honourable, and uh, he came to New Zealand, set up a plan and the result of that was new bases and 30 Vickers Wellington bombers. And uh, those were in train, and the block on the right-hand side actually is the serial numbers of the aircraft that, that uh, NZ-300 was issued to, and there's uh, 30 of those in sequence. At the uh, outbreak of World War II, the government changed all that. When they gifted the Wellingtons and the New Zealand flight that had been sent to the UK to, ferry, to train and ferry them back to New Zealand uh, to the British government for service with the Royal Air Force. In recognition, the Royal Air Force rebadged 75 Squadron RNZF and established what was called a bracketed squadron called 75 New Zealand Squadron RAF, and that happened on the 1st of April 1940. The new squadron inherited the unique AA squadron code, and we'll see what that means a little bit later. Jimmy Ward, when he had graduated from his uh, Lossy Mouth training school, was uh, given the toss. Where do you want to go to? So he won the toss and decided he wanted to go to 75 Squadron. It was a New Zealand squadron. It had a high reputation. 
and that's where he wanted to be and that's where he went. Feltwell was a RAF station, was reopened in 1938 from its World War I uh, beginnings and essentially was a brand new station. After a stop off in London, uh, Jimmy had reported to 75 Squadron at Fertwell and celebrated his 22nd birthday the next day, the 16th of June, 1941. Don't really like organisational charts, but there you've got one. Uh, Jimmy was posted to B flight. His commander was a Canadian, Squadron Leader uh, Reuben, known as Ben Widowson, RAF. He'd uh, served, he'd uh, had pre-war pre service in the Middle East and was a very experienced pilot. Jimmy was assigned to join Widdowson's crew as second pilot to gain experience before he took command of his own crew. He had actually crewed up and his crew was in waiting assigned to somebody else. It was a Wing Commander Scott and uh, was in the, the same group but not on the same base. The commander of A flight was another New Zealander and his name was uh, Squadron Leader Fred Lucas. He was uh, well known later in the Pacific, but uh, his war started in with 75 Squadron and in fact he was one of the pilots on the New Zealand flight that had gone to uh, bring the Wellingtons to New Zealand uh, The th third New Zealander after Jimmy Ward and Fred Lucas was uh, the CO of 75 Squadron and his name was Cyril Kay. He was known as Cyrus and uh, had been the, awarded a DFC earlier and had a, an interesting career in civil aviation as he had flown with James Hewitt, a uh, Dragon Rapide called Tainui in the 1934 air race from UK to Melbourne. And the last uh, New Zealander, didn't call them Kiwis at that stage, uh, was Group Captain uh, Morris Buckley, yet another Kiwi as I said. And his name was Buck and often referred to as Old Buck. But he uh, he had uh, similarly, similar to Kay, a lot of experience in New Zealand civil aviation before uh, he went to the UK. Station commanders were powerful men, contro controlling the entire offensive and support elements, including the supply chain for fuel, munitions, aircraft stores, accommodation, hangars, barracks, messes, everything the, air the, air the airfield needed to aeroplanes in the air. Feltwell was a group, was a part of three group and that was led by the air officer commanding and his name was John Baldwin uh, known as Jack. Of course this is the Royal Air Force and uh, nobody would call them anyone by first names unless you were a, pe a peer, in other words a, rank, uh, a person of the same rank. Feltwell was one of hundreds of RAF stations responsible to operate and support two or more squadrons, usually of the same aircraft type. 
as a measure of the effort to build up the Royal Air Force. By 1943, a new airfield was being opened every three days. So unusually, a good number of, call them, call them Kiwis for us, uh, held senior command posts at Falkwell, and so Jimmy Ward was surrounded by other New Zealand crews, commanders and crews. Don't expect you to uh, remember what's what. It was an interesting map. It's the first map I've ever seen that had the altitude of the, of the bases. Feltwell has uh, got a, a pointer on it, and Feltwell was 50 feet above sea level. New Market, which was nearby, was 100, <coughs> and um, Witten was 130, but Mildenhall was getting close to sea level at 25 feet. The picture on the right-hand side is a map that was done relatively recently, and it just shows the airfield. And uh, they basically took over the next-door neighbour's paddock, and uh, aeroplanes weren't stored in hangars. They were stored in dispersals, which is out in the weather. And uh, so you, um, the ground crew had a very tough time looking after aeroplanes in the open. Just as aircraft had been um, dispersed, air crew were dispersed as well. So Jimmy was assigned a billet at the old rectory, that's a picture of it, in a nearby village called Hockwell. And um, there's a picture in, of uh, Jimmy at the bottom, and uh, he was waiting his uh, pickup from the transport that would take him to off to work each day. The aeroplanes themselves, the Wellington bomber, was the uh, result of uh, a development from the, originated from the Air Ministry, and that's what it looked like. It had a very unusual uh, construction method, and uh, we'll talk about that But the, the real point that I want to make is that there was 11,500 of these Wellington bombers made. The aeroplanes were versatile and relatively easy to modify and were adapted for many roles including torpedo bombers with a lee light that descended out from the fuselage to locate submarines on the surface. Um, they were surpassed by other larger bombers in the UK but they went on to serve in most theatres of operation and uh, were very well uh, loved by the crews that flew them. Apparently they had an unusual, this uh, geodetic structure, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, meant the aeroplanes flexed a lot. So it was like flying as a seagull. So apparently you just got used to it. So the pictures at the bottom is uh, of an, one of the two <coughs> Wellingtons that are left in existence. And this one was rescued from Loch Ness and, re and restored, but leaving some of the structure exposed. The aeroplane was fabric covered, which meant this is Irish linen, uh, sewed onto battens, and you can see the 
the battens here, the longitudinal ones, and uh, stretched over, uh, doped on, and then paint applied to the top of that. So um, anybody flying in a Wellington bomber, as any, any aeroplane, uh, this was uh, relatively flimsy. Once you doped it and put paint on it, uh, it took a form of rigidity, but uh, it was very, uh, its feature though was that because there was so little structure, uh, bullets really didn't, uh, apart from shooting the crew and shooting the engines, uh, the Wellington just kept going. One of the designers of the Wellington was Barnes Wallace, who had a reputation for all sorts of things, which started with airships, and it was him that uh, that uh, introduced the geodetic structure. And we'll just try a, a video. Let's see how we go. So the theme that I had while we were rebooting is that life for Bomber Command people, particularly in operations, was noisy, it was cold, and it was dark, and it was dangerous. Noisy because nobody, they, while they had earmuffs to, uh, as a headset, they, um, the aeroplanes themselves, as I said, no insulation and uh, pretty basic. It was cold, and uh, if you remember from from your aviation, for those that are from aviation, every 1,000 feet in altitude, you lose two degrees in temperature. So at 10,000 feet, you're 20 degrees below what you are on the ground. And uh, that'll be significant in the bit that we'll see shortly. I'm going to have. I'm going to carry on without the uh, the, um, the bits that go with it. I think we might try with that one. See if we get this one. So my add-ins are not working. So we'll go and carry on without them. Right. That was the story about uh, making the Wellington bombers, and essentially uh, Vickers had this plan where the aeroplane could be made in, in a day. That was the whole factory contributing. The, uh, the story called uh, Workers' Weekends actually was uh, showed that uh, an aeroplane could be assembled in 24 hours, and they set the target of 30 hours, and I think they achieved it in 24 hours and 40 minutes. So that was from nothing on the jigs. The, all the pieces came prefabricated. That sections of these geodetic structures. The aeroplane was flew away with, with armament and uh, 24 hours later. So just a little bit about Bomber Command. And Wellington's in Bomber Command. 
didn't have a good start in the 1939. 22, 12 out of 22 were shot down in a daylight raid. And um, the whole idea of uh, Bomber Command was to deal with the, uh, after the occupation of Europe and the Battle of Britain, Bomber Command was the only force available to hit back at what was a fortress without a roof. The name of a very good study of, uh, of the Strategic Air Command. The aeroplanes were basic. This was Whitley bombers, Hamdens, Blenheims and Wellingtons were what the Air Force what the Air Force then had available and with what they uh, turned their attention to uh, attacking the Germans in their homeland and in their occupy in their the countries that they occupied. The British had already developed with this the home chain uh, radar system integrated into the fighter command control systems. The German radar was better but they didn't have, or they hadn't seen the need for an air defence. They were con they were all conquering, and didn't need it. Bomber Command itself was headed by uh, an air marshal, uh, Sir Richard Pearce, and uh, his headquarters was in High Wycombe, RAF High Wycombe. I think it's in Berkshire. Is that right? Hampshire, right. And uh, so, um, as you see, Bomber Command in the middle, along with Coastal Command, Fighter Command, Training Command, and then a series of groups, and these are some of them, and underneath that was Fatwell and 75 Squadron. So I'm not going to start doing this again because we'll lose the world and we'll carry on. It was a movie called Target for Tonight and it was unusual in that the people in command were actually featured as uh, personnel in the movie. It won a, uh, some awards for its, uh, for its excellence and included operations of, of uh, Wellington bombers as well. These, this is essentially uh, the well, the uh, Royal Air Force bombers on the left, Wellingtons, Stirlings, the first four four engine uh, bombers, British made, and then. Um, Handley Page, Hamptons and Halifaxes, another four-engine aeroplane. So uh, opposing them was Messerschmitt 110s. So in 1941, Bomber Command grew in strength, but navigation over blacked-out blacked Europe was still a major problem. Setbacks in the Battle of the Atlantic meant a major effort was needed against German warships and U-boats. German night fighters and anti-aircraft guns were becoming more effective. Heavy losses called a slump in morale. Two engine bombers formed the bulk of Bomber Command, Wellingtons and Hamptons. 
and then as I said uh, some of the four engine ones uh, appeared. Opposing these light and medium bombers was the 110 as I mentioned and it was a particularly dangerous foe as and with the reputation of being heavily armed with cannons and uh, machine guns. The unseen nemesis was the Cam Huber line. Essentially it was comprised of an air, air defence series of grids across northern Europe. This image was acquired by a Belgian agent and you can see the these were called uh, Himmelbecks and they are actually a 32 uh, kilometre square and of course the bombers quite ignorant of this line uh, had to run the gauntlet. They were running the gauntlet actually at that stage um, with against searchlights, <coughs> manually operated searchlights. They became radar operated later but initially uh, the idea was you used the searchlights to show the pilots of these uh, 110s where the enemy was and uh, then they went and did their business. The Cam Hoover line was defeated by directing bombers and streams to def defeat the defensive system. But essentially this was the start of a cat and mouse game of electronic warfare which followed uh, through the rest of the war. As the book talks about, uh, Dr. R.V. Jones, a scientist, was, became the British expert uh, who identified German electronic systems and set about countering them. Every uh, organisation's got leadership and so on the British side uh, Charles Portal led the Royal Air Force and in New Zealand another Royal Air Force officer uh, Hugh Saunders led the RNZAF. In the UK the Air Council ruled, in New Zealand the Air Board ruled. Alongside them there was uh, the Air Ministry actually had a New Zealand liaison officer assigned to it and a very popular person who um, was always willing and able and available was uh, to visit troops and, and units in the UK was Mr Bill Jordan who was the New Zealand High Commissioner and felt well, was a regular place that he visited. One of the biggest changes happened uh, in the organisation of the Royal Air Force and the Air Ministry was that at a stroke as soon as uh, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, the entire aircraft production component of the Air Ministry was devolved to the Ministry of Aircraft Production. This was a huge move, but it wasn't unparalleled in that Winston Churchill had become the Minister of Munitions in World War I, so knew what had to be done. What you might not realise is that Aircraft production in the UK was massive and it consumed aircraft production and support not just in the UK but also in the United States as we'll see in the next slide uh, consumed more than 60% of the war economy of the UK. 
weren't building ships, they were building aeroplanes. And if you, you'd have to be spending money if you're going to open a new airfield every three days. In the uh, United States, the uh, British government had established the Direct Purchasing Commission, and the numbers there, I won't repeat them, are staggering. Uh, was at $12 billion of uh, orders, and that was 1940, and they expected to deliver 500 aeroplanes a month uh, by 1941. At that stage, interestingly enough, the, uh, the Americans were neutral, and so uh, aeroplanes could only be delivered unarmed, and uh, they were taken to the, uh, the Canadian borders and border and pushed across because the Americans weren't allowed to help them. Uh, as soon as the Land Lease um, Act was signed in March 1941, uh, that all changed. And most importantly, uh, Britain went on, uh, was able to purchase war materials on credit, which was not the case prior to that. And uh, New Zealand was party to uh, sending gold shipments to uh, meet the, the cash payments that were required for these aircraft acquisitions. And the Niagara, the ship that was lost in New Zealand uh, to a mine, uh, had gold that was destined to, uh, was a Bank of England payment to the United States that didn't quite make it. So there's just a uh, number of the uh, aeroplanes that went into bombers that went into Bomber Command Service from the United States. This is 75 Squadron at um, Fatwell, the, um, and just running around the, um, running around was the, the um, slide starting with the air traffic control, which is obviously, which is self-evident. Uh, um, a walk down, which was a public relations exercise done uh, before Jimmy Ward arrived. Picture at the right top is, um, High Commissioner uh, Bill Jordan meeting the troops, and um, the bottom is um, Jimmy Ward's annual, uh, celebration lunch uh, with the entire squadron. In the middle, at the bottom, is a uh, what everybody did every day, and this was briefing and debriefing. And uh, in this picture, this picture was owned by a contemporary of Bill, of uh, Jimmy Ward, who lives in Wanganui and was at the book launch. And then at the left, aeroplanes out in the field and uh, obviously the ground crew uh, got a bit of sunlight and uh, enjoying the day. This is the Wellington cockpit for the pilots among us and uh, it is actually a single place cockpit with uh, one set of controls. Single, uh, a twin set of controls was available for the training version, but that only uh, was available with a special set of modifications that um, put in, the put in uh, pedals and um, another control column. So pilot seat on the left and uh, a dicky seat on the right where the second pilot would sit for takeoffs and landings. What is unusual is that uh, That there is the, is the entry door, 
and it's also the uh, bench, the squab for the bomb aimer to uh, uh, lie on. So it's all pretty close and it's not that much room. I like the picture on the left. It is a real picture. The, uh, apparently it was staged from 149 Squadron and uh, it just shows uh, the gear that they wore and I told you about the theme that it was cold and uh, the pilot is mittens and uh, pretty good gloves and a May West over the top of everything and then as well as that uh, there would be they would have um, parachutes as well I think the, the, the captain had a seat parachute and the everybody else had uh, chest parachutes So Wellington in service, this picture on the left hand side to me is, this is Jimmy Ward's world. This is the pilot in command sitting in the, in the cockpit and discusses plans with his observer, um, flashing the, uh, the map where they're going. Across the top, uh, an aeroplane oddly in, in a hangar being serviced, and then a very pointed picture and that will come on to the relevance of shortly is the, um, the astro hatch and if you can see here's an observer with his head in the astro hatch which is a dome and there's a tray across the across the middle and he's got a he's standing in the middle of that and uh, so it did this sextant shots out the astro dome and uh, this was a freehand um, sextant. Back down to look in the, um, the rear of the fuselage, and this is a crewman lowering, about to release a, uh, uh, a camera flare. Across the middle, the um, bomb bay beams at bomb base, uh, long and narrow, and quite well suited for uh, torpedoes, which was one of the variations. The operations room for stations was the centre of management and control of what happened on a daily basis or whenever there was going to be operations. This is a uh, this is the picture of, and they took one of they took pictures of this whenever it changed. So they had evidence of what was, there wasn't any computers of course, and so you had the, um, the aircraft, the, um, the code of the aeroplane, and I'll tell you about that in the next slide, who the captain was, what the takeoff time was, and the um, return time. Other aeroplane, other airfields in the vicinity were also um, noted with the, um, the visibility of those airfields. So this actually constituted what was calling, uh, called an order of battle. So at Fatwell there was 75 New Zealand squadron and 57 squadron RAF. So both had same number of, air, of aircraft and on in this picture on the 16th and 17th of June 1941 
was uh, 31 aeroplanes, 16 for 75 and 15 for, <coughs> for 57 squadron. I was telling you about the uh, everything had a, that uh, aeroplanes had codes. So an aeroplane had a uh, a letter code, which is the, the single letter, and then it had a double letter. So AA was unique to 75 New Zealand Squadron. It had been inherited from 75 Squadron Royal Air Force, and uh, all the aeroplanes in that squadron always carried the AA code. Individual aeroplanes were, were assigned an individual letter code, and uh, this was not just for identification in the daytime, but uh, they used Morse code with a signal light at the front of the aeroplane to indicate to the ground crew uh, which aeroplane was which. So the point was that everybody had to know Morse code, ground crew as well. We're now getting at the penultimate time for uh, this lecture, which is about Jimmy Ward and his um, feat on what was called the Munster Raid on the 6th and 7th of July 1941. Essentially the aeroplane um, was with a, a number of other aircraft sent to attack the rail yards at a city called Munster and uh, while we haven't got the nav maps for the for the uh, for this particular raid, I've drawn in one that uh, isn't in the book that might have been. So essentially, heading north across the Atlantic, across the uh, English Channel into Germany, and uh, back via what's called the Inland Sea or the Zuider Sea in. Uh, in Netherlands or Holland, and it was here that a, um, an ME-110 attacked uh, the aircraft and gave rise to a, a fire that uh, Jimmy Ward was attempted to deal with. Essentially, the uh, once the fire had uh, Jimmy Ward's story, and the book talks about uh, Jimmy was actually the only person on the crew that didn't have a job. He was he was required to look out, but uh, he was there as a standby pilot in case the uh, the captain was injured, and uh, he was there to learn the ropes before he became a pilot in his own right. Part of the attack included the, uh, in fact we'll go forward a slide, resulted in damage to the aeroplane. In the nose, uh, suddenly got really drafty with the skin, and I talked about the, uh, the canvas covering, not the canvas, the, the uh, Irish linen, uh, was peeled back to expose the uh, the geodetic structure, and on the wing, 
we actually got a different story. So we go back to the slide we just came from, and uh, this is a depiction of uh, of the action that uh, Jimmy Ward was involved with, where he actually climbed out onto the wing to deal with a fire that uh, was a fuel-fed fire, and. Uh, if you, if you look closely at the picture, depicted in the, in the Astrodome is the navigator, and his name was Joe Lawton. Joe Lawton was, uh, went on to become a superintendent of navigation at Air New Zealand, but this time he was, uh, he was the observer, a sergeant observer in, uh, in 75 Squadron. And this is a rope that Jimmy Ward tied around him, around his chest. He had a, he had a, um, a parachute on, and he took with him uh, the cockpit cover that he was going to use to put the fire out. Going forward, on his way down, so he gets out the, the astro hatch, and the astro hatch was always designed as a hatch. It was an emergency hatch for getting out of the aeroplane um, if, uh, if, if it had a problem for those in the middle cabin. What he did was uh, the fabric was, was weak enough for him to kick holes in the fabric so that I talked about uh, this being dangerous, this being noisy, this being cold, this being dark. But uh, the aeroplane was at this stage running at 90 knots, so over 100 miles an hour. Uh, so that's a hell of a gale to deal with. And I also said that the, the temperature, and we actually looked at the mean temperature in uh, Rotterdam when they went too far off from it, which was 12 degrees. So take 20 degrees off that your sub-zero, add to that the chill factor for 100 knots, 100 or 90 knots of wind, and before you even start uh, climbing anywhere, uh, Jimmy Ward was essentially putting his skill as a climber to, um, to uh, save the lives of those all those on board. The thing about the, this particular fire was fire was really a problem for the um, for the Wellington because this fabric, which was covered in paint, was uh, just waiting to burn. Fortunately, in this case, uh, Jimmy's efforts, uh, while it didn't put the fire out, it it uh, the fire never spread, and the uh, It became, he was busy trying to uh, shove this uh, engine cover down into the wing, but uh, suddenly the wind got it and uh, off it went and the uh, rear gunner saw it flying by uh, off into the, uh, into the organ. Left Jimmy Ward nothing, more, nothing else to do but to climb back into the, into the cabin and uh, he only got back into the cabin with the help of his uh, of Joe Lawton, and uh, the stories in the book, and uh, 
the story is on a audio which uh, I was going to show you, I was going to uh, run for you and we might run that at the end of the, uh, the sequence rather than now because I'm not sure that we could get back to where we started. The result was that uh, this is the, the picture on the right is the aeroplane after they had successfully landed at a place called Newmarket. Newmarket is the same place where it's uh, a famous race course to this day and uh, they chose that because it had a longer runway than anywhere else and at this stage the uh, bomb doors were open, the, uh, there was no brakes and uh, thing that the uh, that Widdersand had to do was uh, keep the aeroplane flying and particularly keep the engines going. The, in, the propellers had no auto feathering or no, no feathering at all so uh, it was important if you could to uh, keep them going. So the, uh, the normal routine after they landed was to retrieve the crew from wherever they were, in this case uh, Newmarket. The entire uh, staff of Newmarket were, were paraded the next day to look at this aeroplane uh, because of the mess that it was in. And uh, two weeks later, I just need to go back so I've got my notes here. Back at Feltwell, the crew debrief was attended by CO-75 Squadron, who had the job of deciding who merited uh, awards. He decided a, a Distinguished Flying Cross for Widdison, the captain, and a Distinguished Flying Medal for Sergeant Alan Box, who was the rear gunner. Those were awarded immediately, but Jimmy's Jimmy, the recommendation for Jimmy for a Victoria Cross uh, took 22, 21 days and went through the awards committee and whatever that involved. So the result was uh, what we saw in the next slide, you see this, is that Jimmy Ward was uh, staying with his brother at uh, Teddington in uh, just out south of London and uh, the base commander or the station commander, uh, Buckley, Morris Buckley, sent <coughs> to reward this, this telegram. So I'll let you read it. On the way back from London back to the, uh, back to a station, Jimmy stayed in London, and among those he met was Peter Lane's father, Brian Lane. And this was at the Forces Club, we decided at the Forces Club. Brian Lane was a, was a pilot in Coastal Command, and thanks to Peter's assistance um, in proofreading the book, Brian Lane's diary entry is mentioned in the book. Jimmy arrived at Mildenhall Station, to a hero's welcome. So the, the VC was announced, he was taken off operations and became public property and instantly a celebrity. He was wined and dined and uh, 
was in the company of uh, celebrities like Noel Coward, and uh, for six weeks, uh, this became his life. Back in New Zealand, the uh, BBC, the news was broken by the BBC World Service, and uh, this was the noon, the, the noon news. Here is the news, and this is Alva Liddell reading it. This is how the news was read, and the reason for that was that there was a whole host of people around the world purporting to be um, not who they were with odd news or misinformation. The Ward family heard the news via the family doctor, and uh, they experienced the same celebrity status uh, with a similar, similar deluge of mail. In the book, uh, Jimmy has uh, lots of commentary on the poor delivery of mail. That was the job of the New Zealand High Commission or New Zealand House to uh, collect mail, find out where the troops were and then send it on. Picture on the right is one of the things that uh, Victoria Cross recipients end up getting done and that is sitting for a portrait. So six sittings, take you take your gear, and uh, that's the that's the picture. That picture exists in, and uh, was gifted to New Zealand and is still in New Zealand, and currently at the uh, RNZAF uh, Harkier Officers Mess. Bottom right is uh, Jimmy Ward's dad. This is Percy Ward, the guy that had the uh, story about. Hitler and his mates, and the Coventry Spire. So the story, the uh, congratulations went on, uh, staging was done of, uh, for PR purposes, and this is the uh, Woodison's crew with Jimmy in the, their box here, and uh, Mason, the radio operator, the uh, Ford gunner uh, was injured and wasn't available for the photos. So this is another piece of news and we'll try this one. No, it's not working either. Worked fine today. So after the hullabaloo of uh, celebrity status, um, Jimmy was made a captain and his, the crew that he crewed up with were restored to him and he was back on operations by September. At this stage he was uh, running up to 300 hours of flying in the year that he had uh, accumulated since he started. and. Uh, on a raid to Hamburg, which was a city in uh, Germany renowned for building ships. Two aircraft took off from 75 Squadron, and no, of the aircraft that took off, two failed to return. So two Wellingtons, and their crews, and their crews simply disappeared. 
and they weren't seen again in the UK. FTR meant a sequence of mission, missing and action messages was sent to the RNZF and the next of kin of both crews. I talked about fortress over, over without a roof. The effects of Bomber Command's uh, bombing campaign was uh, epitomised by Albert Speer 15 years after the war when he said, no one had yet seen, this was the greatest loss, lost battle in the German side where thousands of troops, thousands of anti-aircraft guns uh, were produced and ammunition stockpiled and essentially took those troops away from the front. That was one of the primary reasons for the Bomber Command campaign to proceed. But the cost was high. I said the, it was noisy, dark and dangerous. And the, dan the danger meant that uh, 57,000 aircrew were killed, 8,400 were wounded, 9,000 were made prisoners of war, and that was the price that, that, that our previous generation paid to uh, bring the Germans to heel. So agonisingly, there was no news of his fate for over a year. Jimmy's brother, Harold, re, uh, got a reply to numerous letters he'd sent to, New Zealand, to British prisoners of war, and Pete Peterson, who was Jimmy's navigator, uh, reported the tragedy. Essentially, his aircraft had been shot down, returning from the target. Two, crews had, two of the crew had survived, and Jimmy and three others had perished. Jimmy wasn't coming home, and New Zealand missed hailing its first uh, Victoria Cross recipient of World War II. It took two years before his remains were found and his family was advised. Jimmy's remains lie in a, with his crew in Oldsdorf Cemetery in Hamburg. And this is a picture of Glenn Turner, who's, uh, who Alan will know well, an RNZAF uh, senior NCO, who's now the 75 Squadron Association Secretary and uh, makes it his business to uh, look out for 75 Squadron uh, people, including Jimmy Ward, whose, whose grave is pictured here. Jimmy's just running through quickly now. Jimmy's remembered um, in the UK, in uh, the RAF church in uh, London, St. Clement Danes, all the recipients of Victoria Crosses and George Crosses are listed, and Jimmy's listed in, uh, on the left-hand panel. In the UK, he's also re uh, 
there's a pub called the Wellington in Fretwell. It's got a uh, it's got a memorial wall. In uh, of the three A pilots training course, Fraser Barron became a wing commander and was um, decorated with a DSO and bar, a DFC and a DFM, and was named Bomber Baron. And it was CO of seven squadron. And his story, which includes a mention of Jimmy Ward, was written and uh, is one of the books I've got on the, the rack here. So Baron had, Baron had uh, become a casualty, Ward had become a casualty, Jim Starkey survived and he was, uh, <coughs> he represented the uh, 3A pilots training course in the victory parade in 1946. Others um, were uh, Bob Watson, who's in the front row, group captain Bob Watson, and uh, I remember seeing him in my own time in the Air Force. The histories of um, the, the world of Jimmy Ward and who he knew and who, who were his commanders was thanks to um, By Such Deeds, a book, a large book at the end by Colin Hanson and For Your Tomorrow by Errol Martin. These men have done biographies of the entire, of everyone who was given, was given an award and everyone who was a casualty. It's a remarkable book. So uh, Jimmy's Legacy for New Zealand was, one, was the first VC awarded to a New Zealand air, air, airman and uh, these are the other two. 75 Squadron, uh, 75 New Zealand Squadron became 75 Squadron RNZAF that we know from, uh, from Ahakia and uh, with it the transfer, the reverse transfer as a result of the gifting of the aeroplanes in 1940 meant that uh, the battle honours from 1916 right up to 1946 all feature on the squadron standard that's shown in that picture. Jimmy Ward is remembered in New Zealand in a number of places. I particularly like the role of honour at the Air Force Museum and that's this all men and women who died in the service of the RNZF in war or and peace. At the bottom left, uh, Jimmy Ward is, is, is painting of him, a picture of him is paraded each Anzac Day by the school that Jimmy, Jimmy uh, attended. In the middle, uh, uh, an, sort of an effigy, it's a photographic uh, image, stands about that high, it's supposed to be real height, um, was uh, developed in a series of, of them for men and women who uh, were part of the, the history of the RNZAF uh, and that is at the Air Force Museum of New Zealand. One of the interesting things, I talked about the logbook connections and uh, in the logbook we found uh, Flight Lieutenant Letter I talked about before, but we also found that uh, NZ744 uh, actually still exists. 
it exists now as uh, ZKAJP and uh, is still alive and well in Napier. Classic Flyers is, uh, has a special place for 75 Squadron and Jimmy Ward and Alan Reynolds, Alan Reynolds who's here tonight was the architect of a major display which um, you're free to visit tonight. That includes Jimmy Ward and uh, a replica VC and his list of medals. And uh, last slide, Courage of Flame by Bob Moore is the culmination of work that he started in 1983. He was a school teacher and attend and was a master at Wanganui Boys College. And the college had renamed their assembly hall the Jimmy Ward Memorial Hall, and nobody knew what it was about, so he set about correcting that. And the fallout of that was somebody said to him, in fact it was Fred Lucas, who I mentioned before, uh, said, Bob, you've got a job, and that's to write a biography. So that is uh, available tonight. The recommended uh, retail price is $69, and we've got a, a special just for tonight. We're not, uh, so we're not set up for FPOS. We'll take cash or, um, or you can pay, pay by direct credit if you choose. So we're at the end to, uh, and hopefully in my address I've succeeded and given you an insight into the world Jimmy knew it felt well and something of the challenges he and his fellow aircrew experienced on operations and the lives endured by him and his peers that they encountered every day. The ongoing losses of entire crews must have been harrowing not to mention the anxiety for their families. <coughs> From my reading of Jimmy Ward, he never set out to be famous, and he faced fame with the same courage he faced in attempting to put out the fire on the wing of his Wellington with all his might. That concludes my lecture. It's gone on longer than I anticipated and the, um, the gadgets didn't work. So we'll uh, conclude at this stage and I'll invite Jack to take the chair again. Well, thank you very much, Des. That was... Uh quite a topic you uh, were tackling there and uh, it was a very wide-ranging discussion and so on behalf of everybody um, I, I'm thanking you I'm, I didn't know all those facts about uh, Sergeant Ward I did learn about him uh, in, when I was doing my service in the Air Force uh, it was compulsory part of compulsory training I think in the background of our service that People learnt about some of the more famous of our forebears and runners. Um, but it was interesting in the, that he set out to be a school teacher and uh, he wound up 
doing the very brave things that he did, which was a reflection of uh, his whole cohort, really, of uh, young men and women of the day. And uh, it's a sad thing that he didn't survive very long after his uh, most famous exploit there, where he was a, uh, where he won the, the Victoria Cross for that brave attempt to put the fire out. And uh, the I think one of the things that led to his crew being able to survive that event was purely because it was uh, a Wellington with its geodetic uh, construction. Uh, I, an uncle of mine was a tail gunner in those same aircraft and uh, he was based in Malta and uh, on three consecutive landings uh, on arrival back at, at Malta uh, from sorties over um, Italy, the tail section broke off on touchdown and he was left down the uh, approach end of the runway and the rest of the aircraft, went, and that happened three consecutive times. So it, it got them back, it got them down. There were a lot of survivors. My uncle uh, suffered from a very serious stutter or all his uh, remaining life. And uh, anyway, they were, the fact that they had such, in 1941, and, and leading up to then, they had such primitive navigation, and they most spent most of the time not knowing where they were, and certainly not being able to bomb accurately. It was all part of Churchill's um, uh, efforts to encourage people to support the war you know that was that, that caused the, all those night raids and why the RAF turned to the to night raid bombing so we've had a quick look at what went on in the background and it was uh, it was very enlightening and thank you Des that must have been quite some job putting that all together so again would you please thank Des that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.